On today's show, we find out what happened when somebody went into Eco Polytechnic and started shooting. And the only reason he shot is because they were women. This is the story of Mark Lapine. Welcome to Enter the Dark. Welcome to Enter the Dark. I am Jan. With me, as always, is the man who's cool, like ice, cold to the touch, and it isn't very nice. It's Les. You're right. You're right, man. I'm good. Good. How are you? Yeah, Sal. Yeah. Um, so, if you're watching this on video, you can see our faces again. That's because it's a lot easier for me to edit. So we did it, and I also put it to a vote on the community page, and it was something like fifty odd percent said yes, faces, but with more pictures. And then we had yes faces, normal, and yes faces, but just for, you know. So it was overwhelmingly faces, so you got it. Um, it'll get better, trust me. Don't worry. And if you don't like it, just listen to the podcast, because these people listen to the podcast, not about what the fuck you're on about. But yeah, um, welcome. Tonight's episode is a Patreon special for our very own classy lady, Amanda Champagne, all the way from Canada. Oh, Canada. Oh, home and great lad, whatever, Tennant and Philip and all that shit. Um, but yes, if you do want one of your very own episodes, then pledge to us $10 or more on our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash enter the dark and you can choose a case and we will cover it for you. Speaking of Patreon, let me read out from the book of Patreon facts. It's good and it's shiny. I've got these on. We have... Hannah Blue Harrington, Amanda Champagne, Astoria Crowley, Amy Aaron and Jack Coleman, Sasha Johnson, Lisa Dempsey, Marie T. Jensen, Casey the Cannibal, Misty Day, Becky Louise, Izzy from the Clink, Jules Henderson, James Harrington, Mr. Crow, Richard Vaccarelli, Michelle Hudson, and Alicia Lou Allen. Thank you all for pledging to us and helping us get these out quicker. Also, um, just a thank you to a few people out there. Um, some have subscribed to my channel. Oh yeah, he's got a channel. Yeah. So thank you for all you uh, who've come over to The Hangman, you know, have a pint with us, listen to some spooky shit. There you go. Thank you very much. Past like 1,000 now. So, well done. Yeah. And it's Oh shit, yeah. Um, thank you. We've passed 10,000 subs. Yes. Shit. Yes. We've not said we that. We haven't said that. Um, we should do something for that. Also, I'd like to say happy birthday, Les. Thank you. Because it was your birthday last week and it's my birthday on Wednesday. So we're sort of in betwixt our birthdays at the moment. Yeah. So... Yeah, well done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I would reached it this far without dying. Yeah. Did you like your present I got you? I did. It was a very nice present. I drew him a picture in my very own art style of Mothman chasing me and him. And he said, did your daughter do that? Fucking prick. I'll, we'll get a picture of it and uh, stick it stick it on. Because they wanted more pictures. They will, yes, but it's a retro NFT. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's good. Paper. It's good. I it's... did I spent like literally 10 minutes making that. It was beautiful, and it moved me. It moved me. That you thought a seven-year-old girl did it. It touched... Well, yeah, it touched me. Not because I thought a seven-year-old girl had done it. Shit, that's your daughter. Fuck it is. You know. Moving swiftly on, let's get started. Ah. <laughs> Talking about incels who don't like women. Les? So then, let's get started. Monique Lapine was a Montreal nurse. She was 26 years old when she met Algerian-born businessman Lise Garby in 1962. Monique was from a little middle-class French-Canadian family 
and the daughter of a bank manager and her professional devotion to the sick had superseded an earlier belief that she had a vocation in the Catholic Church. Well done for not giving into the Catholic Church. I'd just like to say that. Also, she's French-Canadian, so do you know what that means? She goes, Ha ha ha! My children need more maple syrup! Who are you to argue, eh? French-Canadian. <laughs> what French-Canadians sound like? Honestly, Amanda will agree with me. She'll be like, yeah, that's what they sound like. Is that, <laughs> what, they, is that what they sound like? Yeah. My children need more wine. Who are you to argue? Is French ca- Canada, is, has that got a different like, capital? Is it still Ottawa? Is Ottawa the capital? Quite sure Ottawa. I it was Montreal or Vancouver. Is, I don't know. I don't know. Is it, has one got a different capital to the other? Are no, they different territories? The different territories. The different, yeah, because one was due to French colonisation. Yeah, Montreal. British. Yeah. Ah, oh, Jesus, 18 hours. We're running out of time. All right, boys, prepare yourselves. We're about to enter French Canada. French Canada? There's no Canada like French Canada. It's the best Canada in the land. The other Canada is hardly Canada. If you lived here for a day, you'd understand. <laughs> Welcome to French Canada! Anyway, sorry. Anyway, so Lise was 30 years old and it was a big, <clears throat> confident man, self-made and proud of it, like Charles Whitman's father in the wheeler-dealer world of investment finance. He was a very bright guy. According to his lawyer, that was Stanley Selinger, he said he spoke a number of languages and was a fantastic salesman, a sleek dresser. He could sell the Brooklyn Bridge to anyone, eh? Monique fell for him and she married the following year in 1963 in New York State in the United States of America. Not in Canada, of course. The early years were a golden time for the Garbies. Their first child, a son, was born on the 26th of October 1964 and christened Gamil Rodrigue. A daughter, Nadia, was born two years later. What was that for? The... I don't know. Just felt like it. Felt right. I know you can see yourself, but you're just getting used to it. I just I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with it yet. So Lise raked in the money through the booming mid sixties, and the family enjoyed smart homes, big cars, and big parties. But the Garbies' marriage soon began to sour. Monique found herself increasingly embarrassed and humiliated by the, her husband's incessant womanizing. There were rumours he had a mistress in Brassard and Longueuil, and closer to home, a neighbour, Francine Charon, said she was subjected to his attentions and his fairly vulgar approach. What an horrible chad. He is, isn't he? Imagine yeah. that, though. He's Algerian, also. He's living in, like, the French provinces in Canada. And so I'm saying, like, just fairly vulgar approach. It's not even like, oh, come here, let me show you my baguette, eh? Just there, winging it around like yeah. a flesh helicopter. Yeah, winging it. So, the glitzy social life of parties and dinners became an ordeal for Monique. I feared those outings because of the advances he made to women and his habit of rubbing himself against women he danced with. It's fucking Adin the Lombardi. You fucking love the accents, don't you? It's, it's French-Canadian. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying you... My children need more wine. Who are you to argue? Simpsons reference. If you'd know what it is, put it in the comments. And the freeze in the wine. Yeah. <laughs> Always with the Simpsons. That's reference. where the donkey sleeps. <laughs> she claimed he... Weirdly, 
in that episode where Bart, well, I'm ruining it now, but but it's the exchange one where Bart goes to France and then they get the kids Algerian. Yeah, the kids you? Algerian. Yeah, yeah. And he turns out to be a spy. Yeah. <laughs> and Homer like really loves him does, and yeah. bonds with him. <laughs> So she claimed that he had indulged in frictional behaviour with total strangers on public transport. Frictional? Eh? Yeah, so he'd like sort of go up to women and stand on like on a train and go, Oh, I'm so sorry. I cannot stop myself rubbing against you with the vibration of the train. He's just a shh. Let you it. love it, really. Shh. My station is up next. It was clear to many of them in the Garvey social circle, including Stanley Selinger, that he never really respected women, and his wife was not his equal. More like Chatel. I mean... Not Chatem. No, Chatel. Not Chatem. Ah, Chatem. It was a philosophy that, as time went by, Lies increasingly impressed upon his spouse with physical violence. In 1972, Minnick was granted custody of the two children and possession of the family apartment on Rue Prieur in the affluent North End neighbourhood. The separation from Lias followed two particularly torrid years of marriage, during which she told a divorce hearing he had beaten her, she had been beaten by her husband in front of family and friends and slammed repeatedly into a stone wall of the cottage on one occasion. She had liquor thrown in her face for returning home late from a social outing, cowered in the cell for hours in fear of another beating, and witnessed the frequent thrashing of her children if they sang too loudly or failed to say good morning to their father. Not the fun kind of cottaging, then. No, not the fun kind of cottaging. Can we say cottaging? I don't know. We'll find out. I mean, we've got 10,000 subs now. We're we're going to go down in a fiery ball of cancel culture at any moment. We really are. We are. And I can't wait. Some pink-haired knobhead will do it. <laughs> Sorry if any of you got pink hair, but you're not a knobhead. He's talking about one in particular. Who probably watches this. Probably. Lies was a violent man, although he denied that he had ever physically abused his family to the extent many claimed. It is certain that occasionally in life someone can receive a slap, but to hit someone and hurt them? No, no, no. There was much corrob- oh, sorry. There was much corroborative testimony for his wife's <laughs> allegations. And Quebec Superior Court Justice Jeanne Warren particularly disturbed to learn of his refusals to allow Monique to console the children after he had beaten them, restricted his visits with Gamil and Nadia to once a month and only under strict supervision. I just like the accent. Lies, however, took little subsequent interest in his offspring. After the breakdown of the marriage, Monique returned to her nursing career. She worked long hours, studied hard, and had little time to spare for the children. For a few years, until they were old enough to be left on their own, Gamil and Nadia were shuffled between willing hands of relatives and friends. Gamil appears to have a lot of affection for one uncle in particular, reportedly a former US Special Forces trained paratrooper who taught him how to use a gun. During this period, Monique became so concerned by her and her children's difficulties expressing our need to be loved, she enrolled the family in psychotherapy. In the summer of 1976, with a year of psychotherapy behind them, she and the children also said goodbye to the bad memories of Rue Prieur and moved into a small house on Rue Perron in Pierrefonds. Just... Literally, someone here was like, let's French up this place. Let's call it Pierrefonds. <laughs> Pierre. Perron sounds like... Like Peron, like a dictator in Argentina. That was Eva Peron, wasn't it? Don't cry for me. Yeah, but like her father was 
She had loads of shoes, was, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, she did. But like Peron was like the oh yeah the dictator at the time, wasn't he? Yeah. Do you want the one like the Falklands War? No, that was way yeah. before the Falklands. But um, no, and also going back to the Simpsons reference there, there was one where Lisa was trying to get um, class president, and she got it, and then they changed it by make, giving a makeover, and it was like for Lisa, for Lisa. Yeah, you know it's weird that they made a musical about a woman married to a dictator, a fascist know. dictator. They did Springtime for Hitler. That was a parody, though. But, like... It's got good songs in there. It has got very good Spring songs. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Don't you low-key want to, like, make a musical about Ava Brown, though? Ava Braun? Maybe. Know? Just pushing for the cancel culture. We are. We can't even get a fucking video with the puppets. So, how are we going to... So, a musical about Ava Braun... We're puppets. So you want my wife to make an Eva Brown and a Hitler puppet? Mm-hmm. She was conflicted over making fucking serial killers. She's not going to make Hitler. If you want it to happen, head over to Patreon. If you want a puppet Hitler. And a musical about Ava Brown. We know, we know people in the music, well, not music industry, we know local bands. Could be a black metal musical about Moving Eva on. Braun. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'll shut the fuck up. She went to bit they moved to Pierrefonds. There were woods and a river nearby, and it seemed like a good place for wounds to heal. When Gamil Garby started grade seven at Ecole Secondaire St. Thomas in Pointe Claire, he was a quiet, withdrawn young boy who habitually hid himself with and his shock of black curly hair under one of his many baseball caps. Jean Bellinger, also from Ruperon neighborhood, first came across him on the school bus. So, he was this new guy on the bus and, and a talkative tab, and he obviously wasn't. So I sat next to him, eh? Gamil then found himself a friend. The two boys lived practically next door to each other and went to school together, spent the evenings and weekends together and became great friends. Oh, that's nice. In Ballinger's opinion, the guy was not nutso. He was not nutso, apparently. Although he clearly had some problems, don't we all? When he first started visiting the Ballinger house... He would get inside the front door, take off his boots, tuck his hat down, and oh, but run past my parents. It's kind of, of as though he was afraid of something. However, it was ne- never very easy for Jean to find out what was going on inside of Gamil's head. If he would have a problem, he would never ask for help. If something hurt him inside, he would keep it to himself. And only once after persistent probing, not like that, Les, did Gamil refer to his violent father. He told me they would be sitting at the dinner table and if his mother served Mark and Nadia before the father, the father would go nuts and start beating everybody. Pow, 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 pow. My slappy hands. Would he ban them? We don't talk about that. <laughs> at school, Camille's <laughs> academic record was good. Socially, he was a lot less competent. With the exception of Jean Ballinger, he avoided contact with other students as much as possible. He sat at the back of the class and if he could manage it, he gave a wide berth to team sports, school clubs and even the cafeteria at lunch times. It was during a lunch hour one day in grade 8, sitting in a quiet spot in the woods near the school, that Gamil told Jean he was going to take his mother's name. 
He said he wanted my name, Jean too. Jean Lepin. Jean Lepin. I said that would be too confusing. Jean and Jean, because we were together at the time. That's not the confusing part. His name would be Jean Lepin. So he he thought for a moment and said, hmm, how about Mark? Mark Lepin. Well, why we went for the most generic fucking name. What about Mark? It is Mark with a C, though. Sounds the same. So thereafter, he went around calling himself Mark Lepin and signed his schoolwork the same. Jean Lepin. Jean Lepin. So even though he was called Mark, he... No, he didn't sign it Jean Lepin. I'm just still Jean Lepining about it. So, Lapine's major interest was electronics, and he wanted an ex- wanted to be an electronics engineer or computer engineer. He spent much of his time with Gene in the basement of the Ballinger house, designing and assembling light sequences, sound effect systems, and mini-computers. Anything they can construct from salvaged electronic junk. Mini-computers? Yeah, man. Little mini-computers. Little mini-computers? Yeah. Little like tiny imagine, a com- imagine, a ki- imagine a computer. But mini. But mini. The boys were also interested in guns and warfare. They visited an army surplus store the boys, from time to time, but Ballinger observed no developing psychopathy in his friend's purchases. A gas mask here and a helmet there. It was the same time when it came to shooting pigeons with their air guns. He wasn't like, yeah, I want to kill. It was just fun. We were kids. I was a kid, Gene, Le- Gene but I didn't shoot. I didn't go around... Shooting pigeons. I watched uh, an episode of River Cottage recently. With (laughs) immediately, you're like, for fuck's sake, how could he work River Cottage into this, the bastard? But he was like going round shooting pigeons off the top of this person's, and they let him take the pigeons home and make a a dish. Cool. And they let him like fish in their pond for cop. Beautiful story. So, Bellinger's recollection of their pigeon shooting days is nevertheless somewhat chilling in the light of subsequent events. We each had a pellet gun, and when the pigeons would fly up from their perch, power! He was better than me. I got confused then. I was like, you obviously said pellet gun. Yeah. But then it was like, in my head, I heard pelican. I'm like, was it pigeons or pelicans they were shooting? You're a Belland. <laughs> he could shoot one while it was flying. He didn't miss a lot. According to Bellinger, Lapine found little found little sister Nadia hard work. She was the total opposite to Mark. He was quiet intellectual. She used to taunt him all the time. She used to call him Gamil, Gamil, Gamil. If you wanted to really bug him, just call him Gamil. Why? Why because he I didn't know? like the name. So he changed his name from Gamil. Have you been listening to anything I say? Yeah, sort of. So that's a no, then. No, it's, I'm taking it all in. It's all on the page in front of me, yeah. breaking the fourth wall. You're reading the script, and you still can't remember. With many working and studying, Mark was given the task of looking after Nadia. He didn't get a summer job, but he was paid by his mother to stay home and do the chores. In 1978, Monique enlisted the help of Big Brothers Association to provide a surrogate father. Now, the Big Brother Association, if you... Ambulance... If you've ever seen The Simpsons, where Bart gets the big brother, and um, it's a guy and he takes his stuff, and then Homer gets a little brother called Peppy. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. they have a big fight at the aquarium, and he throws fucking starfish, and the guy gets him and puts him in the tank. He's like, there you go, guys, and a shark comes and eats him. Um, yeah. The Simpsons for you. 
I love it. Um, so, <laughs> the big brother was an easygoing man in his mid-40s, and Mark got along well with him in Jean too. He introduced them to photography and motorbikes and took them to the cinema and even brought them electronic equipment. The following year, in 1979, the boys graduated from St. Thomas Junior High School to Polyvante de Sources in Delors de Omeru. Lepine maintained his reputation as a sound, if nondescript, student. Robert Houlet taught him maths. He is very usual, average, plain and typical. Plain and typical. Usual, average, plain and typical. Why don't you just say, fucking, I don't remember him. Just a bit of a, a non-player character, really. I don't, I don't remember him at all. Even though I taught him maths and then he shot a load of people. See, most people would be like, nice, nice kid. Nice qu- kid. Quiet, nice lonely. Like he's just quite quiet loner, very quiet. This guy was just plain. I like how people still call David Koresh was a quiet loner when he lived with loads of all them people and had all those kids and women everywhere. It's the people you don't expect. I, I think they kind of expected David Koresh. That's why they set fire to his compound. We'll get to Waco and then you'll realise how corrupt the government really is. And that David Koresh was... I don't know, I, I kind of want... If I was in the cult, I'd want to be in David Koresh's cult because he was fucking sexy as fuck. Long hair, played electric guitar, he could cuddle me in them arms. So, Lapine appears to have remained fairly happy throughout this period. The big brother was a lot of fun, and although Jean Ballinger was now dating a girl, Gina Cousineau, Lapine had, very, had few fears of losing his buddy to Cupid. He was very shy around Gina at first, but after getting to know her, he was fine... He said, I was not just a typical girl. I was more like one of the guys. We were always together, the three of us. We became like the three musketeers. We don't know if they had a menage a trois. Ballinger encouraged Lapine to try dating for himself, but he had a lot of problems with that. It wasn't that he wasn't interested. Maybe the way he approached women wasn't exactly the way women like. The three musketeers never got their d'Artagnan. To be fair, though, D'Artagnan does, like, sort of low-key rape somebody in that He does, book. but that wasn't in D'Artagnan and the Three Muskehounds, though, was it? But it would have been a better show if it was. <coughs> Don't make rape noise at me, lads. In 1981, the Big Brother suddenly disappeared. Probably went to prison for something. <laughs> Lapine told contradictory stories about what happened. First, he said that the man had simply taken off to Europe and that he was gay, had assaulted a young boy and had been jailed. Ballinger was never sure which, if any, of the explanations were true. I'm going to go with the assaulted young boy. I mean, why else would you sign up to one of those sort of programmes, really? I mean, yeah. I'm always iffy. That and the Boy Scouts. Yeah. So it's a bit iffy, isn't it? I mean, you look at him and think, why are you getting involved with these kids? Because it was like when Brandon went for his first scout camp, he was gone for the weekend and he come back and he was like really quiet and was like, how was it? Okay. And we were like, shit, something's happened here. And like, we were really worried. And it just turned out that he couldn't go on the climbing wall. And so he was dead disappointed. Be the other way around, probably, like, if you like, worry, it's like, oh, like, there was this one guy who was really cool to me, like, used to give me special treatment and, like, show me magazines and stuff. And there was the next time he went to scout camp, he come back, and he hadn't drank anything for three days. 
So we almost had to rush him to hospital. Is he still in Scouts? Oh, is he fucked now? No. He, 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 after we paid £100 towards him getting back to Paris with Scouts, he was like, I don't go Scouts anymore, it's gay. He's not wrong. I'm not saying that as a derogatory term. He's just 14 years old, so everything's gay at the moment, even though I say stop saying that. Yeah, yeah. Bad Brandon. Bad, bad. Yeah. Use different vocabulary. He does, he'll just go, he's fucking wank. And it <laughs> just grunts. He's 14. <laughs> wank. We wank. Anyway, in the winter of 1981-82, in the wake of the Big Brother's disappearance, Lapine walked into the army recruiting office in downtown Montreal and filled out an application. The military rejected him, interviewed, assessed, and determined to be unsuitable, according to the official statement. And he was 17 years old at this time. Canada have a military? Yeah, Canada have got an army. And, I mean, no offence, Canada, but... How bad was he that he couldn't get in your army? Because I know, like I know, you were in World War Two and you helped us out, and thank you for that. You know, and World War Hitler I. was a prick, but no one's going to invade Canada, are they? Maybe they want their asbestos. Yeah, we'll get to that when we do the Antil kids, the asbestos mines of Canada. So, anyway, soon after the army rejection, Monique sold the house in Pierrefonds and moved the family into an apartment in Marlborough Court on the western perimeter of Aeroport de Cateauville in Saint-Laurent. It was nearer to the Saint-Jude-de-Laval Hospital. Hospital. You say that in French, do you? In a long-term care facility where she worked as director of nursing. She's done well, hasn't she? Director very, of very director of nursing. Yeah. Other more relevance to Lapine, it was far enough away from Pierre Fons for him to gradually lose touch with his only close friend, Jean Ballinger. Ballinger thought that Mark didn't seem very happy there. We had been together for so long. I guess maybe he was lonely. Maybe, if he's lost his only friend. And yeah. then you're... F- they're fingering Jeannie in the woods while he has to look on. She's like, oh, with the three musketeers. He doesn't get it that she wants him to finger her too. No? The three musketeers. Three musketeers. Hold me like a bowling ball. In the autumn of 1982, Lapine enrolled at CEGVP St. Laurent, a community college in the Pure Sciences course, a popular route to engineering school. At home, he was shutting himself away in his room with his books, Piles of electronic components and an old computer, the major input from the outside world being the sound of aircraft from the nearby flight path. One of the last occasions Jean Ballinger saw him, Lapine gave the impression that these days with with his best friend was the computer. It was now that Lapine's plans for a career in engineering started to go awry. He failed two subjects in the first term of his course. His grades improved somewhat in the term too, but he decided nevertheless to make the first of what would develop into a bizarre geometry of career moves. Bizarre geometry. Yeah. In the autumn of 1983, he switched from pure sciences to a narrower programme in electronics. Then, strangely, in January 1986, with just a few months to go to graduation, he suddenly aborted the course. He quit for reasons we do not know, Claude Boyley, the director of the CEGEP St. Laurent, revealed. He did not notify the college of his decision. He just stopped going to his classes. According to Boyley's records, Lapine enrolled in a total of 57 course components, 
passed him 41 of them, leaving 16 that he either failed or dropped. He was never seen by any of our psychologists, and there was not any report in his file noting he had any behavioural problems. Passing the buck. Yeah, very much. Fucking Boyley. Boyley's only clue to Lapine's motive for quitting came from a head of department who seemed to remember that he had talked about attending the École Polytechnique. Lapine's first verifiable visit to the visit to the engineering school was in fact on the 11th of September 1985. Never forget. He was made to purchase at the students' cooperative, and it was soon after that that a CEGEP tutor noticed an unexplained drop in his marks. Now, if he did quit CGP St. Laurent in the belief the course components had already completed were sufficient for gaining admission into Ecole Polytechnic, he was very, 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 very wrong. When he filed his application to the engineering school in 1986, he was deficient in two subjects. He was informed that his application could be reconsidered only after he had completed the two courses he was lacking. The rejection by the Ecole Polytechnic appears to have outraged Lapine. Certainly, it marked the end of his studies for a while. He got a job in the kitchens of St. Jude de Laval Hospital. Now, the work in St. Jude's failed to challenge his intellectual abilities, but the money he was earning did enable him to save for a new computer and to move out of his mother's house and rent a modern one-bedroom apartment in Laval. In the eyes of landlord Luc Riopel, Lapine was a model tenant. He paid his rent on time, kept the place clean, and he didn't bother his neighbours. It's a bit like you, that is. Isn't it? It is. He was a good guy, but he lived in isolation and did not appear very happy. He told me he didn't like working at the hospital. It was not what he wanted to do for a living. It was just a job for him. His real interest was in computers and war books. He had lots of war books. War books. War books. <laughs> Just war books. I mean, I've got lots of books on serial killers, but... Yeah. Which wars, though? It's not very specific. But books on war. You know, like, that book over there about, you know, unsolved serial killer crimes and shit, and unsolved mysteries and shit. It's not just one, is it? It's just, you know, best war battles ever. No. What is your favourite war? The Great War. It's the best. Great, isn't it? It's great, yeah. That's kind of great. All the other wars are like the Boer War, you know. There's no Boer. The Hundred Year War and stuff like that. The Great War, because it was like great. What about the Thirty Years War? Yes, it's too long. Too long. I like my wars concise. World War Two went on for a year too long for my liking. It's St. Jude's Lafayette. Three out of five stars for World War Two. Yeah, you know. Could have been better. We've made a lot of comments in that era of European have history. You, have you noticed, ever since I said we're going to go down in a flaming ball, glorious flaming ball of council culture, we've just upped it up a notch? I know, yeah. Someone's so, going to be like, in a minute... This is a dog whistle. This is a dog whistle. This I, is. I, I just fucking can't... I just can't wait for the comments off those like couple of people who are always like, oh, you could do it. Won't fake outrage at Joe Rogan. I fucking hate the cunt. And anyway. it wasn't anti-Semitism. No. So no. No. I read that. I actually I... think it could have been the same person who said that. Just stop watching. No, keep watching. Just if if you're gonna, you know, get things wrong about us, at least subscribe on Patreon. www.patreon.com forward slash enter the dark. Hate funding. Yeah. Fund funders, then haters. Everybody's going to be checking the comments now. It's like, oh, God, 
Don't don't mob her. Don't mob her. Don't him. 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 I don't know. Don't know. No, we didn't assume your gender before you leave a comment. At St. Jude's, <laughs> Lapine's poor social skills made things difficult for him. He worked at 100 miles an hour and tried to take the persona of a wisecracking extrovert. Things got broken and nobody found him funny. <laughs> he was like, I can do this really fast. Look at me. It's like, Shh. It's not funny, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't even use my hands. <laughs> Look at this. I can wash with. I can wash this cup through my teeth. <laughs> Most people kept their distance. Dominique Leclerc, a student who worked at the hospital on his summer vacation, was an exception. I was kind to him because he was so hyperactive and nervous. Everyone else tried to avoid him, but he was a bit strange because of his shyness. Lapine did spell serving food out in the cafeteria, but people complained about his acne. <laughs> that's really fucking mean <laughs> they sent him back in the kitchens until he and told him to grow a beard but he couldn't grow one <laughs> when Dimitri Leclerc returned to college in the autumn Lapine followed suit he enrolled in a short course at CGP Montgomery studying mass communication algebra and politics he worked hard and completed the course, gaining marks of 75% or higher in all three components. His enthusiasm for study rekindled. He took an entrance exam and passed for a $9,000 computer course at the private Control Data Institute in downtown Montreal. He began the course in March 1988. The setup at Control Data had a major attraction for him. Students worked alone. No group work for him to try and avoid. No classes for him to try and find a back seat in. The only interaction necessary was with a computer and true to form, he was known as the quiet guy who liked to wear baseball caps. Fucking nondescript bastard. His He's really boring, isn't he? He is. Isn't he? He get, I mean, I'm not going to say he gets better, but, you know, he ups it a notch. Oh, good. People died, last. People died. His studies ostensibly were leading him circus, to... circus, isn't it? Yes. We're leading him towards having another crack at getting a place at the Ecole Polytechnic. Geographically, he was certainly gravitating towards the campus. He started out in Pierrefonds, 20 kilometres from Université de Montréal site. His final move to 2175 Rue de Bordeaux took him within five kilometres. He shared the second floor apartment there with an old high school acquaintance, Eric Cassette. It was from around Cassette. the Cassette? Cossette. Not, cassette. Not cassette. Oh, like from Lame It's not like a cassette. I'm, I've never seen Les Miserables. It's, there's a person in it called Cassette. Cool. You could have read the book. Like, that's another one. It's pretty long. I picked it up. I was like, Les Miserables. He's my best friend. I don't know. I'd cheer him up. You know everything you need to know. Yeah. Because it's pretty Wolverine much. sings in it. It was from around this time of this last and change. Maximus. Of not very well. Yeah, is Cat Catwoman sings in it as well, don't she? Yeah, Catwoman. I think she's Cosette. Quite sure she's Cosette. No, she's not. She's Catwoman. It's pronounced Catwoman. Cosette woman. No, it was around this time of his last change of address that some sort of private turmoil going on inside Lapine's head began to manifest itself publicly. He was giving many people the impression that his sights were still set on gaining admission to Ecole Polytechnic. Yet other people were being fed quite a different story. Luke Riopal, the landlord, said that Lapine moved out. He said he was going off to join the army. 
There's been also got in touch with his old buddy, Jean Ballinger, their first contact in about five years, and told him he was thinking of joining the military. He had gone to a high school reunion in the hope of seeing Ballinger, but Ballinger, in hospital after an accident, was unable to attend. Lapine did, however, see Ballinger's former sweetheart, Gina Cousineau, at the reunion. She was there with her fiancé, and they talked at some length. Gina asked him how he, ca- how he came to finish working at St. Jude's. He told me he had been fired by a woman, and that another woman had taken his place. There you go. Right. Foreshadowing. Lapine's hostility towards women and his sexist views were becoming increasingly overt. His flatmate, Eric, found his views offensive, but not unusual. Overt, but not unusual. Yeah. He put his bitter remarks down to his, his Lapine's inability to establish intimate relationships with women, and he felt Lapine just needed to socialise more. In other words, what he's saying is, like, you just need to get laid. That's essentially what he's saying. As it was, he spent most of his free time with his computer and books or watching videos from his large collection of mostly pirated pay TV war movies, examining what Cassette called the strategic aspect of war. As well as the program at Control Data, Lapine had enrolled in an evening update course in chemistry at CEGP, a prerequisite for getting accepted by Ecole Polytechnic. Here in February 1989, he met a young woman called Sylvie Druin. Sylvie thought he had quite a good, was quite a good-looking guy and asked him to be her lab partner. Despite the acne. He's probably grown a beard. Finally got, got it through. His curly hair, he's just cut it off and glued it on his face. <laughs> Anyone get this reference now from Beavis and Butthead? Damn, I'm smooth. Just thinking of, like, Team America. Durka, Durka, Mohammed Jihad. Their relationship... Oh, God, we really are pushing it up. It's Team America. Team America, it's from a film. We didn't come up with that. Yeah. Commenter, commenter. Yeah, we didn't come up with that. Blame Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Fuck, Dirk Dirk Allah. Dirka Dirka, Muhammad Jihad. Haka Sherpa Sherpa, Abakala. Oh, Dirka Dirka Dirka. Their relationship got off to a poor start. Lapine called her Fraulein all the time for the first few weeks. He was very severe with me. I was never correct. He was being a fascist. Sylvie finally gave him an ultimatum. Leave off or get himself another partner. Lapine began treating her with a bit more respect. Stop calling me Fraulein or fuck off. <laughs> yeah, <I love> <laughs> Stop calling me Fraulein. You fucking prick. Sylvie was also taking a course on computers and asked Lapine if he could help her. She suggested maybe she could come over to his place. In the beginning, he was a lot of fun. I remember the first time I walked in and he told me to sit on the chair and he showed me all these things he could do with the computer. Colours, three-dimensional stuff, that kind of thing. Back then, computers weren't really. Love, I was just like, this is a little programme we call paint. Look, I've made this ball bounce. Ace. You got Mario. But Lapine was not a very good teacher, and when it came to Sylvie's homework, he simply wanted to solve the problems himself and hand the finished result over to her. I don't see a problem in that. I mean, she's getting something out of it. Yeah, I, I, you know, for, for, well, I don't know if she has to do a practical exam. She's fucked. Yeah, yeah, she is. Sylvie, nevertheless, continued with the visits. They spent about a dozen evenings together in the spring and early summer of 1989, but the relationship remained platonic and Lapine became increasingly uncommunicative and withdrawn. 
although the world inside Lapine's head spilled into the public domain less frequently now, on occasions when it did, it showed itself to be more sinister world than had been previously seen. On the day he turned up at chemistry class with a newspaper clipping about a policewoman bitterly complaining that women should not be allowed on the police force. In the ensuing discussion, the lab assistant, André Tremblay, submitted that Montreal police had a large number of female officers, a suggestion with which Lapine took fierce issue. He said, To date, I have only found the names of six of them in the newspaper stories. <laughs> Is that what you're lying for? What you're lying for? Eric Cazette was also received lectures from Lapine on women in male occupations, as did the employees in a neighbourhood grocery store. <laughs> pay for your groceries and get the fuck out. Casual sexist, then, this yeah. man. He just walks in and he's just like, do I hate women? The one place who was altogether happier Lapine could be found was Checkmate Sports, a gun shop. An assistant at Checkmate would <laughs> later recall... That's an awesome name for a fucking gun shop. <laughs> Checkmate. <laughs> he used to come in here like many young punks. Rising around, he didn't appear any crazier than anybody else. He seemed like a happy guy. I guess he felt good here. It isn't a place where you see a lot of women. It is a boys' club. Toys for boys. Okay. Keep an eye on that guy. So, <laughs> Sylvie Dreen saw Lapin one final time about a week after the chemistry class finished in May 1989. She was still unaware that long ago as March, he had quit control data computer course. The reason he gave, apparently? He was not going to change his career. He did not say what his plans were, according to Jean Cloutier, the director of control data. Sylvie told Lapine that she had been accepted for an engineering programme at the Université du Québec at Trois-Rivières. He told her he will be going to École Polytechnique in the autumn. Lapine, in fact, was going nowhere. All his ambitions had come to nothing. The weeks passed, Sylvie had said she might phone him throughout the summer, but she never did. <laughs> I'm not surprised. At the end of the summer, Eric Cassette deserted him to go backpacking in South America. On the 5th of September, Lapine applied for and subsequently received a firearms acquisition permit. On November the 21st, he purchased a Ruger Mini 14 rifle, 100 rounds of ammunition from Checkmate Sports. He told the clerk, clerk he was going to hunt small game the next day he was seen wandering on the second floor of eco polytechnic he was seen again at the engineering school on the 1st of december 4th of december and the 5th of december on the afternoon of the 5th of december he also rented a car the following day wednesday the 6th of december he drove the car through freezing drivel to the eco polytechnic it was the last day of classes before christmas vacation and it was the last hour of life for Mark Lapine. Now, to the students who were in there, it seemed like a normal day. It was just cold and drizzly. The last day was the session. It was the final presentations were going on in different places. About 60 students sat in classroom C230 on the building's second floor. Towards 5.10pm in room 230, a room fa that was facing east towards the Hospital General de Montreal and the Cimetière de Notre-Dame-des-Nerriers, I just like to put those Nailed places in. Nailed that. I did. Luke Gauthier rose from his seat and quietly left the mechanical engineering class to pay a visit to the bog. Toilet, that is. As he headed off down the corridor, he passed a man who appeared to be in his early 20s, carrying a bin liner and wearing a Montreal Tracteur baseball cap. In room 230, professors 
Yvonne Bouchard and Adrien Sernier sat listening to an oral presentation by two of their students. In the corridor, Lapine slid out the Ruger from the bin liner and Professor Bouchard failed to see anyone enter the room but became aware of alien presence when Lapine demanded that everyone stop everything and angled to within two or three feet of the students giving the presentation. One of the pair, Eric Chavary, observed that Lapine was smiling and he was very calm. Many of the 60 strong class thought the gunman was an end of term prankster and it was our last hour of term, student Pierre Robert subsequently recalled, we practically laughed. Even Eric Chavary, who could not be considered himself, who could have considered himself to be in the most immediate danger, thought it was a joke. That's got it upsetting. Yeah, yeah. Very Lep- much so. So Lapine, still smiling, fired a shot into the ceiling and addressed the class. Separate yourselves, girls to the left and guys to the right. Nobody moved. <laughs> you don't can't command a room, can he? Pierre Robert thought the shot was a blank, Lapine repeated the order, managing to inject sufficient authority into his voice for the class to start separating. <laughs> he one, really tried. Really one tried, or two yeah. of the more nervous students now edged behind pillars, and in the confusion, males and females became mixed in the two groups. What, in dreams, Lapine had no doubt envisaged as a clockwork military operation was turning into a farce. <coughs> he reiterated his demand. He was like, men to the left, girls to the right. What is hard about this? You'd fucking go there, you go there. And, you know, that was it. Eventually, the students were divided as he wanted them. Okay, he said. Guys leaves, girls stay here. The male students, goaded by Lapine's request to move your asses and still unsure what was going on, began filing out into the corridor. When the last man had left the room, Lapine turned to the nine female engineering majors who remained. He was positioned between them and the door and asked if they knew why he had come. One student replied, no, and her name was Nathalie Provost. He's like, I'm here, he said, I'm here to fight against feminism. Look, we're just women studying engineering, Provost tried to reason with him. Just students intent on leading a normal life. He screamed at the top of his voice, you're all a bunch of feminists and open fire. Shit. He sprayed the group with nine girls from left to right, emptying most, if not all of the bullets into the 30-shot magazine into their bodies. Nathalie Provost collapsed with wounds to her lower leg, bullet graze above her left eye. She was one of the luckier ones. Six of her classmates fell dead. Their average age was 21 and the causes of death ranged from a single head wound to a massive hemorrhaging from nine bullets and four ricochets. Outside the room, the male students, hearing the shots, hightailed it to safety. Gallant. Gallant motherfuckers. I mean, you're going to be scared, aren't you? There's way more of them, though. They could fucking bull rush him. Yeah, but they're scared. Fucking casuals. Lapine began stalking the second floor corridors. He turned a corner and was faced 30 metres away with a group of people milling around a block of photocopiers. He raised a rifle and fired. Three people fell to the floor wounded. Eric Chavary, who had lingered down at the far end of the corridor, now fled for the stairs. Other students in the vicinity did likewise. Lapine advanced past the photocopiers in the classic military mode, back to the wall, wheeling and firing. The first 911 call from the Ecole Polytechnic was logged at 5.12pm. Within minutes, the Montreal Emergency Communication System became inundated with calls. 
yet for all of its fiber optic cables, digital substations, computer-aided human operatives and VHF radio channels, its ability to get law enforcement officers on scene was light years behind Lapine's ability to inflict death. Armed as he was with a 1,000 meters per second muzzle velocity weapon. With impunity, he continued to robe the second floor foyer, Terry's Cafe and corridors. Now, in the finance department, Maurice Langnier hurried to lock the office door. Lapine was stalking up the corridor, turned and came trotting down, arriving in time to take aim through the window, which unfortunately squarely framed Langnier as she turned away into the interior of the office. He fired twice, one of the shots shattering her skull. He returned to the now deserted second floor foyer and stepped onto an escalator, hemming down. In the ground floor cafeteria, we're told Wojcicki uh, was decided to was trying to decide what he wanted to eat. His wife, Barbara Kluznik, had already filled her tray and paid the cashier. Suddenly, people came running, pushing Wodaskis, uh, I can't say his name now, that guy, into the cafeteria kitchen, slamming the door shut. He lay on the floor with others and tried to work out what was happening. The chef was standing by the door with a knife. Meanwhile, a .223 caliber bullet entered Barbara's lower back, lacerated her left kidney, pancreas, spleen, diaphragm, liver, heart, and left lung, fractured her sixth and seventh ribs, and exited from her left breast. Shit. The force of the shot skewing her so that a second bullet entered at the left breast made an equally devastating reverse journey through her body before exiting from her back. All prior to the brain... All prior to the brain of neurophysicists registering the sound of gunshots and concluding there was a hold-up. Um, her fiancé said, I believed it was only the cashier that was endangered. Barbara was already dead by the time he realised it. Now, Lapine strung the length of the cafeteria, firing off shots at will. Those who had not fled and sought the desperately inadequate cover of mouldy plastic chairs and laminated tables. By the time he left the cafeteria by a door at the far end, Two more young women lay dead. One girl was wounded. He went and searched fresh pleurae on the third floor. The first two police vehicles now arrived at Ecole Polytechnic, having in the first instant been directed to the Tour de Vierre, the student's residence. They were all joined almost immediately by another from the same district. In the absence of senior police official, the officers of one vehicle took charge and proceeded to cordon off the college, positioning police cars to the southwest and northwest of the building. The district commander, his lieutenant and a tactical intervention unit, a scenes of crime team and ambulance team had all yet to arrive. Suddenly, Lapine appeared in the third floor foyer, shooting and wounding three students. Down the corridor, an engineering materials class was in progress. At the front of the class, Eric Fugat, Maurice Leclerc and Roger Thiffault were giving an oral presentation. They paused for a moment, listening. To the ears of anyone unfamiliar with semi-automatic rifle fire or conditioned to its electronically enhanced representation on film soundtracks, the distant sounds of gunshots could have been a dozen things. We thought it was something falling on the ground, Eric said. Everybody looked around, wondered what it was, but nobody thought it was gunshots. They continued with their presentation. A short while later, the door of the room burst open and Lapine entered, cradling the Ruger. From Eric's position, the example of high-specification mechanical engineering in Lapine's hands could have been a toy, an appraisal he would quickly revise as Lapine advanced, yelling, Get out, get out, and shot and wounded Maurice Leclerc. Forget and Thiffel were also with the two professors scrambled for cover. 
Lapine shifted his stance to shoot it into the front rows of the class and swiveled again to target Maud Havenick and Michelle Richard and the, as they looped away trying to reach the door. The two young women had worked all term on the same metals project and were also paired together in death. Lapine began tracking up and down the aisle at the side of the room, firing between the rows of desks. Four students were hit, Roger Thurfold spotted a classmate and he took out and between rows five and six, moaning, crying out for help, bleeding and bleeding. Shit. Turcote had been shot twice in the upper body. The blood was maple-leafed across her white blouse and she twitched under the desks like a nightmare Canadian flag. And she wouldn't survive. Did you write that? I did because I had to put a bit of comedy in it because I was, it was getting a bit too serious for me. And that's where you chose to put it. <laughs> for, for fuck's sake, man. <laughs> Sound off in the comments. <laughs> Sorry, do continue. There was a brief pause in the shooting as Lapine came to the end of a magazine and swiftly reloaded. Two students took the opportunity to scurry to the door and escape to safety of the corridor. Lapine stepped up on a chair and began stomping across desktops. Eric forgets kept his head down and he was, said he was shooting all over the place. If you put your head out, he could take it off. Maurice Leclerc lay bleeding on the rostrum, a position she'd been in ever since Lapine had entered the room and hit her with his initial shot. The bullet had shattered six of her ribs and blown splinters had lacerated her left lung. She gulped air as she moaned for help. Lapine leapt upon the rostrum next to her, drew his knife. The blade exposed was surgical candor in the flat fluorescent light. The heaviest of the three knife blows found Maurice Leclerc's heart and she moaned no more. She was the 14th fatality that day. Lapine drew a deep breath then and calmly put the knife down on the professor's desk, together with two boxes of cartridges and his baseball cap. He sat down and took off his anorak, revealing a skate rag sweater with a death's head motif. He wrapped the anorak around the gun's barrel. Those who were listening heard him mutter the words, Oh shit! And those who were watching saw him squeeze the trigger, blowing off the top of his own head. And it wasn't half past five yet. So this had taken less than 20 minutes. Jesus. Yeah. So all that. Just like an insane, like 15, 20 minutes. Of just pure ultraviolence. Yeah. So the police were outside, cornered off the college, and they'd grown to 17 vehicles and 28 officers. At 5.35, just as news was coming through that gunman had killed himself, the district commander arrived to take charge of the operation. One minute later, the first police officers entered the building. Now, um, Whithold had left the cafeteria by the fire escape, still under the impression there had been a hold-up. Now, he's still thinking that his fiance is alive. Yeah. So, um, it was the middle of the night when the police finally allowed him to re-enter the, vi- um, the building. He said, he found Barbara in the cafeteria. She was still a little bit warm. I opened the zipper and found a hole in her left breast, the breast I kissed every day. One hole that finished everything, the American dream in this country. We believed that Canada was the safest place in the world. We could have gone on to West Germany or Switzerland. I know you're grieving, but you don't follow the American dream in Canada. That's North America still, isn't it? It's yeah. not part of the United States. Yeah, but States. you don't go for the American dream, do you? you? Go. I'm going to American dream. Where are you going to? West Germany. Yeah, yeah. 
Switzerland. Wales. I, I, I'm a terrible person, I am. We were, um, we were thinking about moving to Hungerford. Who? Me and you? You didn't discuss this, this with me. This guy? Oh, sorry. Did she not get that? Yeah, but I was just thought then, I was like, me and you? I never... No assault, guys. No assault. So, in Lapine's pocket, police found a letter he wrote which gave an insight into his killings. So, are you ready? Letter time. Forgive the mistakes. I had 15 minutes to write this. See also the annex. Would you note that if I commit suicide today, which is um, 8-9-12-06, it is not for economic reasons, but I have waited until I have exhausted all my financial means, even refusing jobs, but for political reasons. Because I have decided to send the feminists who have always ruined my life to their maker. For seven years, life has brought me no joy, and being totally blasé, I have decided to put an end to those viragos. I tried in my youth to enter the forces as an officer cadet, which would have allowed me possibly to get into the arsenal and proceed Lotteo 1 in a raid. They refused me because I was antisocial. I therefore had to wait until this day to execute my plans. In between, I continued my studies in a haphazard way for never really interested in me, knowing in advance my fate, which did not prevent me from obtaining very good marks despite my theory of not ending in my work and lack for studying before exams. It's very clever. <laughs> Even if the mad killer epithet will be attributed to me by the media, I consider myself a rational erudite, that only the arrival of the Grim Reaper has forced to take extreme acts. Bit extra. Yes. For why persevere to exist if it is only to please the government? Being rather backward-looking by nature, except for science. The feminists have always enraged me. They want to keep the advantages of women, e.g. cheaper insurance, extended maternity leave, preceded by preventative leave, etc., etc., while seizing for themselves those of men. Thus, it is an obvious truth that if Olympic Games remove the men-women distinction, there will be women-only and graceful events. So the feminists are not fighting to remove that barrier. <clears throat> Think about that. Do your research. They are so opportunistic that they do not neglect to profit from their knowledge accumulated by men throughout the ages. They always try to misrepresent them every time they can. Thus, the other day, I heard they were honouring Canadian men and women who fought at the front line during the World Wars. How can you explain that, since women were not authorised to go to the front line? Huh? Huh? Explain that one, Mr. Clever Clogs. Huh? Will we hear of Caesar's female legions, female galley slaves who of course took up 50% of the ranks of history? They never existed? The real Cassus Belli, Latin phrase meaning justification for word, Ellis. Yep. Sorry for this too brief letter. It's not too brief. Seriously. Shut the fuck up. Mark Lapine, Annex. A list of 19 names and telephone numbers of women Lapine identified as feminists. Nearly died today. The lack of time because I started too late. I'd allowed these radical feminists to survive. Alia Jacta Est. The die has been cast. <laughs> what a fucking dick. What really scares me there is the shit he's saying about, oh, you know, 
were about Caesar's female legions and the galley slaves, 50% of them. And, you know, if you remove the men-women thing in the in the Olympics, they'd be shit. That's still stuff you hear of fucking idiots on the internet now. Yeah, it is. And fucking grow right, up. these, what are they? MRAs? I don't fucking... Nobeds is what they are, Les. Men's, men's rights activists oh, and yeah, fucking... Yeah. Um, When's International incels. Men's Day? There is one. And you don't fucking celebrate it, you yeah, prick. Yeah, you don't. You don't. You just complain that people want equality. I fucking hate them. I do. The sticks. Insults as well. Insults are the worst. That one lad, he was complaining he could hear his sister and her boyfriend having sex. And he's like, she doesn't think I'm the same as me. I could be up there having sex. I could be making her make them noises. With his sister? Yeah. Fucking insults. Then anyway, there was that one. We did that one, like, haven't we? That guy who, who shot up the supermarket. Oh, yeah. Randy Stare. Yeah. He's a strange boy. After the massacre, the province of Quebec and the city of Montreal declared a three-day period of mourning. Silent vigils were organised around campus and during funeral services for the victims. People in other towns across Canada joined in with their own public vigils. The world-famous Notre Dame Basilica in Montreal offered comfort and official recognition of the tragedy, offering a single mass funeral service for nine Roman Catholic victims. Not the other ones. Fuck them. Fucking Catholics. In the chapel beneath the University of Montreal's tower, those young women were on view in pearl-white coffins, some closed, some open, for the public to pay their respects. Tens of thousands of people stood in freezing temperatures to have the chance to do so. It's morbid fascination, really, isn't it? What open open casket yeah. funerals? Yeah, I, went, I mean, I've never got that. I've never I went got... for one once, right? And I was only young, and the only reason I went up and had, I didn't know who this woman was. She was someone in my family, but I didn't know her. But you could stand up and go and look at her, and they had a family who were like weeping over a body and stuff like that. I just went and I was like, dead body. Like on that episode of The Simpsons. Here we go again. Yeah, it's like grandma. Don't worry about it, sweetie. When he's like, I'm at the old. Yeah. <laughs> Bart. Bart, stop pestering the dead. You have eerie powers, powers. boy. <laughs> so one woman in line said, I have never seen such a collective outpouring of grief. Many people said that tragedy had made them ponder more seriously the issue of violence against women. December the 6th was set aside as National Day of, Com- of Commemoration. Prime Minister Brian Mulroney pronounced the incident a national tragedy and the flag at Parliament was lowered to half-mast. He could not understand how such violence occurred in a society that considered itself civilised. Other politicians echoed his sentiments. Advocates for gun control were incensed that an obviously deranged man had been able to purchase such dangerous weapon and ammunition so easily. Justice Minister Douglas Lewis promised to look into legislation that could restrict the availability of semi-automatic guns... Yet he added, we can't legislate against insanity. Some commenters thought that such a term downplayed the calculated nature of Lapine's attack. It had not been a sudden insane rampage, he'd planned it for some time, fueled by his hatred of women. He had known perfectly well what he was doing, and had encountered no hindrance to carrying it out. Lapine himself has said in his note that while the FTEP mad killer would be applied to him, he considered himself rational and erudite. He blamed the arrival of the Grim Reaper that had forced him to undertake extreme acts. 
The family is asked in anguish why no one had pulled the alarm earlier and how it was it that so many people in one building could not stop the gunman. One administrator who had locked the doors to his office admitted, it didn't even occur to me to intervene. Yet the head of security in the building said that people acted appropriately. If you can get away from a man killing people with a gun, that's what you do. But there were some who wished that they would have done things differently. Unable to rid their minds of the images, they replay them over and over, asking themselves what they could have done to stop Lapine. While people struggle to make sense of Lapine's rage, his delusion that women might actually respond as he desired, there was plenty of anger. Domestic abuse centres offered statements to effect to the effect that such violence represented the controlling attitudes of many men who were threatened by accomplishments of women. Even when they did not kill as Lapine had done, they abused them to try and retrain control. Many people blame society's collusion with and support of those attitudes. According to book Mass Murderers, those who survived the massacre, wounded or not, were plagued by nightmares and post-traumatic stress disorders. Some could not go on with their education and many went into therapy. Sato Blaise, who had been there on that day, attempted to deal with it but finally succumbed to depression and hung himself. In despair, his parents also committed suicide. Jesus fucking Christ. Even now, years later, people use the tragedy to raise awareness about violence aimed at women who wish to better themselves. The Coalition for Gun Control grew out of the massacre, which has been influential in pressuring for laws that require registration of firearms in Canada with stricter controls. For the families of the victims, that has been some small consolation. Perhaps others have been saved as a result of it. And thus ends the ballad of Mark Lapine. So, uh, as we've just been saying there about domestic violence, we are raising money for refuge all year. So, if you do want to give to that, please go to justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash enter the dark and please give to help us raise money for domestic violence. Um, so, yeah, that was a weird one. It started off making it fun for you, but then it slowly descended into hard hitting, didn't it? Canadian police were fucking useless. They were, they just waited because nobody, because nobody took charge. They cornered it off and nobody went in. Very similar to like Hungerford, that. Yeah. Quite reminiscent of the Hungerford massacre. But yeah, um, I mean, he was just a bit of a knob, really, wasn't he? Well, he was not like misogynist knobhead. I mean, if it was like some sort of anti-government gun nut and he was like, oh, you know, the government uh, corrupt and stuff, you can be like, yeah, they are, but there's different ways. But everything he just said was bollocks. Just anti-women. Yeah, he's just a bit of a knob, really. And if you do believe any of that, that he was standing for there and you're like, do you know what? I, you know, I, I won't go kill people, but, you know, he had a point with this. Go fuck yourself and don't watch our channel, please. Thank you. I, I don't care. You can sound off in the comments all you want to me. You can yeah. send me dodgy messages. I don't care. Somebody will be like, oh, it's the fucking woke brigade. Yeah. Oh, you fake outrage. It's fuck off. It's not fake outrage. We actually, you know. To woke brigade. We're, we're grown men, right, who hate a lot of shit and we have our own opinions and we can form yeah. these opinions in the way that we have likes and dislikes and anything that's popular at the moment we don't have to jump on a bandwagon for yeah and to woke brigade this is what i yeah. say I'm, ah! I'm almost 41 years old i don't give a shit about crowd pleasing 
But if you are a misogynistic piece of shit who hates women for any reason, just fuck off. Please, don't watch our channel. I'll do without your views. Thank you. God. Or the other way around for that matter or if as you do, well. Yeah. Like if, you, if you're going to drop in stuff like like sort of uh, giving us ad homonyms like anti-Semites. Yeah, or, or fake outrage about Jim or, or stuff like that. Just don't. Just don't. Because, you know, it doesn't have to be always about left or right or the centre. People are perfectly fucking capable of coming to their own conclusions about certain shit going on in the world. And... So I hope you enjoyed that, Amanda. Yeah. Got us riled up there. But yeah, um, like I said, that was a Patreon special there for um, our classy lady, Amanda Champagne, who is another one who's had COVID recently, so I hope you're feeling better. Um, but yeah, if you do wish to help us out there, you can do. You can go to patreon.com forward slash enter the dark and pledge for anything from $1 all the way up to $50. $10 or more gets you an episode. Check out our merch stand as well. We've got new t-shirts on there. And loads of cool stuff. We're going to have loads of stuff coming up this year as well. We're going to have the puppets out. Um, there's going to be extra stuff that I can't break the fourth wall with. Because it'll come down. But I've... Do we have the hood? Do we have hoodies? We've got loads of hoodies. Loads of hoodies. They're you, like, just pull on. You Pull on, zip up, you name it, we've got it. Ask Alicia Llewellyn. She brought them. She says they are insane quality. And when she was poorly, she had them on and they made her feel better. I'll buy one. Buy one. Buy one. Mm. We've got the sick fuck ones. Yeah. You know the Simpsons characters will be done. Yeah. You can tell Les puts a lot of effort into the channel. Helps you set up. Major he, he, brew. He did. Came up with a good idea. Right, we set it up a bit different. You know, but yes. Um, <laughs> this is a black background. So. Yeah. So, yeah. If you do want to get in touch with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Email us at enterthedark at gmail. Enter the dot podcast at gmail.com. How the fuck did I forget that after two years? <laughs> Jesus, it's been, it has been two years. Yeah. So please like, remember, like, su- share, subscribe. It's 2022. I shouldn't have to tell you this shit now, should I? I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed in you. Just like, share, subscribe. Okay. I've been Jan. He's been Les. Take care. We've probably been cancelled. Bye-bye. Try a bit.